It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, May 30th. I'm Chris Hardy. Today, we've got a really exciting guest on the show. We are talking to award-winning journalist Michael Pollan about his new book, How to Change Your Mind, which investigates the medical and scientific revolution taking place around psychedelic drugs. And yes, there is a subtitle after the colon. The full title is super long. It's called How to Change Your Mind, colon, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. Michael Pollan is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including The Omnivore's Dilemma, also known as the book that made everyone a vegetarian. In 2015, Pollan had an article in The New Yorker about psychedelic psychotherapy, which highlighted a number of cancer patients who used psilocybin, the compound found in shrooms, and had mystical experiences that lessened or completely got rid of their fear of death. This project brought him into a two-year journey investigating this new world of medical research around psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, and their potential to address various mental health conditions. And if you're asking the question, because I know I was, yes, he did take the drugs himself. Here's Vice's Ankita Rao speaking with Michael Pollan about his new book called How to Change Your Mind. A lot of people know you as a health and food writer, and obviously there's a lot of overlap when covering drugs, such as debunking lazy science or tiny studies and over-extrapolating from them. How is it different for you reporting about psychedelics? Well, it's different in a couple ways. Um, you know, in both cases, I'm interested in health. I mean, it's one of the things I'm interested in that, uh, I, you know, I was very concerned with the way our civilization was creating a a crisis in chronic disease with the with the Western diet, and in its own way, the same civilization has created a crisis in mental health, and um, and we don't have very good tools to deal with it. And that's one of the things that's really exciting about trials for psilocybin and MDMA and some of the other substances that are being looked at. That these may give us some powerful new tools to deal with mental health. Um, you know, rates of depression are soaring, suicide is soaring. Uh, addiction there's there's something wrong out there and um and the tools we have are just really not adequate you know the ssris are fading in effectiveness they people don't like being on them they're hard to get off of they they only work slightly better than placebo so we need some new tools in terms of the science i took a very critical look at the sketchiness of nutrition science um but in a way the standard against which I was judging that was the randomized double-blind controlled study, uh, which you can't do very easily with food. You can do with the drug. There are some real issues in blinding a psychedelic study, uh, since people tend to know when they got the psychedelic. And there are real challenges that are interesting and I get into. And I'm, you know, I'm cautious about drawing big conclusions from small studies, uh, and that's all we have so far. 
But you can study a drug a little more thoroughly than you can someone's diet because it's, uh, you're, you're adding one element. Um, whereas with diet, you're either adding an element, but then you're taking out an element. And you're depending way too much on what people report on, on uh, that they ate. Whereas you know if someone got 25 milligrams of psilocybin, they got 25 milligrams of psilocybin. And you actually had not planned to try some of these drugs, and then you did. How did it change the story for you when you had these trips of your own? And how did it change the reporting? Well, I had written a, a, a long article about psychedelic therapy for the New Yorker without trying any of the drugs. And it's kind of a straight ahead piece of science journalism. As I got deeper into it, though, I realized that I couldn't really do justice to the subject without having experienced what my characters had experienced. Um, you know, I had a journalistic curiosity to figure out what what had happened to them that they were able to transform their lives in such profound ways based on a single psilocybin session. This seemed implausible. And as a journalist, you kind of wanted to figure out what was that about? So there was that curiosity. But as time went on, my curiosity became more of a personal quest with a certain urgency. I, I became actually jealous of the people I was interviewing and the kinds of big spiritual experiences they were having. I had never had a big spiritual experience, I don't think. And um, I was envious. You know, as you get older, the whole the whole idea of kind of rebooting your brain becomes more attractive because you're 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 really kind of you have your grooves of thinking and behavior, you know, you 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 know what works for you. You have mental algorithms that help you deal with whatever life throws at you. Um, and that's all fine. It's very adaptive. But on the other hand, it's a little boring. And it tends to uh, habit blinds you to new experience. Um, and, we, you know, our brains are prediction machines, and they get very good at optimizing predictions. But prediction is not the same thing as experience. So I got more and more curious to see what this experience was like and um, and overcame what for me was a lot of reluctance uh, to uh, to try these things. Yeah. And you actually, you talk about this, you kind of pose this question in your book about, you know, what do we learn from the insights from these experiences? Like how much weight do they actually have? And I'm curious through your personal experience, how much weight you felt that your insights have and then also through reporting and through the people you talk to, how much weight does the medical community give some of these insights and some of the reactions and responses that people getting these treatments sort of qualitatively are reporting? Well, it depends what kind of insights you're talking about. Some of them are, are kind of, you know, what you might call uh, supernatural insights, right? Some people have an experience of an afterlife and they, they have a, a very clear vision of what's going to happen to them after they die. Different kinds of visions. Um, but uh, so those are, how do we evaluate those? We don't know what happens after you die. And people bringing back these reports from psychedelic trips, you know, could be right or they could be entertaining an illusion. And I, and I tried to press that issue with a lot of the uh, therapists. And I, and I said, you know, aren't you worried you might be just planting illusions in the minds of people who are dying? And they had a variety of responses, not all of which were satisfying, although they make a certain sense. I mean, some people would say things like, well, that's above my pay grade. Who knows what happens after they die? 
Another would be, I don't care. If it helps them die um, with equanimity, fine. You know, look, people, people have religion, right? And they have a vision of heaven that allows them to die more easily. And, you know, we can't verify that vision either. So it's hard to know what to do with that. But then there's a whole lot of other kinds of insights people have that are kind of psychological facts that we know from other sources are, you know, have value. I mean, that ranges from the really stupid insights some people had in the smoking cessation study at Johns Hopkins, where, you know, this woman told me that she was a book editor in her early 60s, and she had had this amazing experience of uh, sprouting wings and flying all through European history and visiting all these great moments in, in uh, the history of Europe and, and then dying three times and seeing her body uh, rise from a funeral pyre on the Ganges and, and then witnessing the birth of creation. And she said, you know, the universe was full of so many amazing things that it seemed kind of uh, stupid to kill yourself smoking cigarettes. I think we can confirm that's a pretty good insight. Don't, you know, it's stupid to kill yourself smoking cigarettes. But what the psychedelic experience added to that insight was the kind of uh, authority and concreteness that people seem to have on these drugs where um, what might be an opinion or, an, or a mere insight becomes a revealed truth with this incredible uh, authority that allows her actually to quit smoking. So that's one kind of insight. It's at the opposite end from the vision of, of heaven, I suppose, or the afterlife. And then there's kind of some of the insights that I had, you know, I mean, the big one for me was during one of my psilocybin trips on a pretty high dose, I experienced a complete dissolution of ego. And I saw myself spread out over the landscape like a coat of paint. And yet I wasn't troubled by this at all. There was some other presiding consciousness to which I had access that was fine with it and was unperturbed and uh, disinterested. And that the, the residue of that experience was the insight that you don't necessarily have to identify with your ego, that there is another vantage from which to take in reality and react to what happens in your life. And that's a very profound insight that has proven very useful to me. And, you know, I could have gotten it after 20 years of psychotherapy, I suppose, because that's the kind of thing you work on in psychotherapy is, is taming your ego. And, um, but I got that in an afternoon. So, um, so I think, you, you know, we can't lump together all psychedelic insights and say that they're illusions or that they're profound or real. Um, I think it's a mixed bag. And I think that on the topic of sort of lumping these experiences together, there's also the challenge of not lumping the actual psychedelic substances together either. I mean, as you mentioned, the experience of ayahuasca is very different than the one of psilocybin. Um, and I'm wondering how you see the role of the different drugs and how we should be looking at them as they sort of re-enter or assimilate into our like mainstream consciousness and into clinical practice? Well, that's a, I think that's one of the, the really interesting dimensions of the research is figuring out what the drugs are good for. You know, people are talking about using psilocybin 
for opiate addiction. Is that the best drug? Or some people believe Ibogaine, which is a, a psychedelic from a root of a tree in Africa, is, is ideally suited to opiate addiction because it helps deal with the withdrawal symptoms. At the same time, it, it does the kind of reset in the mind. Uh, on the other hand, that's a very heavy drug that has implications for your heart and is more, um, it sounds like it's more toxic than uh, psilocybin is. And then MDMA is being used specifically for trauma. Um, I know people who've, who've healed trauma on psilocybin and you can do it, but there's something unique about the phenomenology of MDMA and the way it allows you to deal with difficult memories without summoning all the emotional charge that comes with it. And also the way it, it helps very quickly establish a bond of trust with the therapist. So each of them has, has their own phenomenology. And one of the things the researchers are, are trying to sort out is what's going to be best for, you know, which indication. And there probably will be some overlap. Uh, you know, MDMA has been used uh, to deal with social anxiety in autistic adults, but there's some interest in using psilocybin that way too. And what's going to be the best drug for eating disorders? I think that's a very exciting area. And some people feel, you know, psilocybin is the one we should try first. But it's an important question because it shows you we're really just at the beginning. Even though there's been research into these drugs since the 50s, there was this 30-year hiatus during the, the backlash and we have a lot of work to do. And that's, I think, is an important part of the work. But without question, the drugs have very different characteristics. And therefore, they're probably good for different things. You know, it makes me a little bit nervous when we talk about some of these things, because I think similar to how SSRIs are covered or the withdrawal from SSRIs are covered, this can be really sticky stuff. And especially with mental health treatments, since so many of these disorders are not easily defined you know, there's a lot of responsibility to how this topic is covered. And I'm wondering if there was any sort of like ethical challenges you faced or things you had to, you know, weigh out whether it made sense to talk about them or not when you're writing this book. Yeah, I mean, in the book, but also as I'm out talking about the book, I'm, I'm very concerned about, um, you know, not overselling the potential of these drugs, because we haven't finish the process of thoroughly vetting them and testing them. We know some things, and there's a lot of things we don't know, and we haven't yet tried them on really large populations. I mean, the tests we've done, it's, it's, it's important to point out the limitations. They're small samples, and when you have a small sample, you can really cherry pick and, and get the people most likely to respond and avoid taking people who might have bad experiences. You also, at the beginning, have highly dedicated researchers who tend to believe in the efficacy of the drug you're testing, and that has an effect. And you have very well-trained guides who also believe in the drug that you're testing. So, you know, we've, we've, we see a strong signal in the trials that we've done so far, the pilot studies and the phase two trials, but a signal is not proof that you've got a powerful drug. It's also important to keep in mind that, and I, and I do write this in the book, that drugs always work better at the beginning. <laughs> you know, new drugs work well. Why is that? Well, they may have a stronger placebo effect. Um, and we know the placebo effect is very powerful in general and particularly powerful in the case of psychedelics, which are so suggestible in their effects. So some of what we're seeing is, is, is perhaps the expectation of the, the therapists and the people doing the research 
being reflected in the experience of the of the subjects. Um, so yeah, we I think we need to retain some skepticism and withhold final judgment. Um, it's it's very hopeful, but I also worry about uh, talking about such a hopeful potential development to people who are suffering now. And I've been really struck by that as I've been out going around the country talking to people. It's just there's a lot of suffering out there. And here I am talking about something that's very hopeful but not yet accessible. And that must be enormously frustrating to people, and, um, and I'm acutely aware of that. So, yeah, we're in a very kind of delicate stage, and your question is well taken, that um, I think everyone needs to you know, avoid the kind of irrational exuberance that um, – really plagued these drugs the last time around and, and contributed to the backlash. I mean, Leary, you know, became so convinced of the value of psychedelics that he lost interest in treating individuals one by one and decided it was time to treat the whole society and give it to everybody as fast as possible. That would be a very dangerous mistake to repeat. One of the experiences that you talk about that a lot of people have had is this one of awe and I have a friend, Mike Alpert, he's a psychiatrist in Boston and also has been studying psychedelics. And he brought this up, too, is that the role of awe is extremely transformative when we talk about a lot of these experiences. And I was wondering what role you think that plays both in your life and in the experiences that you're reporting out. Well, you know, one of my... Um Key sources for this book is a, is a guy, a psychologist at Berkeley named Dacher Keltner, and that's his subject. He studies awe as an emotion. I didn't even know awe was an emotion. I didn't know exactly what it was. Um, but it keeps coming up as uh, an experience that people have, and it may explain how these drugs work, although it's hard to know whether awe is a cause or an effect of the changes that you see. But according to Dacker and some other researchers who are working directly with psilocybin, he doesn't work on psychedelics himself, the experience of awe tends to uh, shrink our sense of self. If, if you ask people to draw a portrait of themselves before and after they've looked at awesome imagery of nature or whatever, they will shrink themselves in the second picture. So it's a sense that we're part of something larger than ourselves. We're not as self-important as we think. And that this is so powerful that it causes us to, to have to recalculate, recalibrate our place in the world. Now, you could argue that ego dissolution is the primary mechanism. And when you have ego dissolution, which, which leads to this feeling of merging with this larger entity, whether it's other people in this wash of love or it's um, the divine or the universe, that that feeling creates a sense of awe. So what's primary and what's secondary? I, you know, I have no idea. And, and this is the kind of work that is still going on, is understanding these psychological mechanisms. And, and it's important to understand that there are different vocabularies that we have to describe what may be the same thing. I mean, there's ego dissolution, there's mystical experience, there's awe. And, you know, these just may be different words to describe a similar experience you know, that's what's exciting about this, that, that we're, still, we're still figuring it out. And there's a chance for great minds to interpret this experience in, in fresh ways. So I think awe plays a role. I just don't know exactly what role it does play. But it does remind us 
that you can have these experiences without drugs. And that psychedelics is one way to, to this transformative state of consciousness. But there are others. I mean, people have gotten there on meditation um, with, uh, you know, fasting or vision quests or sensory deprivation uh, and confronting amazing scenery. I mean, you know, the astronauts had this transformative experience of awe, some of them, uh, looking at the Earth from space. Um, there's some wonderful writing from the astronauts about what they called the overview effect, achieving this new perspective that made them feel like very tiny, but in a way that was exhilarating. So psychedelics are one way to get there. We may well be talking about the disabling of one particular brain network that I write about at length in the book called the default mode network. And there may be several ways to do that. Oh, breathing exercises too, these yogic breathing exercises and, and drumming and uh, sweat lodges. All these things may be taking us to the same place. The, the beauty of psychedelics is it's, it's, it's kind of more reliable. Something will happen when you give somebody a psychedelic. It may or may not happen when you try to hypnotize them and that it's measurable. So it just has a certain kind of uh, scientific reliability that is attractive. And it's a shortcut, frankly. It's, it's hard work to learn how to meditate well. It can take thousands of hours and, you know, we, we like instant gratification in this society and, and psychedelics, you know, can give you that. I want to circle back for a second to something we talked about at the beginning. And I think this comes through with your food and health reporting as well, which is that we have sort of a bigger systemic problem here where we're all feeling kind of shitty and, and um, a lot of well-being is being sacrificed for whether it work or you know, a bunch of other things that our society is valuing at the moment. How do you see this particular tool being part of a bigger shift that we have to make to sort of bring ourselves back to a better baseline? Well, that's a really interesting question. And it it gets you into this question of, if you can treat people, can you treat a society? And how many people in that society do you need to treat to have a positive effect? One of the things that is really striking about what I learned about psychedelics and what I think makes them of such current interest is that they seem to address two of the biggest problems we face as a society, uh, at least as I see it. And one is the environmental crisis, which is born at least in part of this sense of disconnection from nature and our ability to objectify nature and, and therefore do whatever we want to it. Uh, whether you're talking about putting animals in feedlots or, or uh, you know, drilling for, for natural gas, whatever it is, if nature is an object and we're the only subject on the planet, then nature is ours to do with what we want. Um, this is leading to, you know, a civilization-wide crisis right now. On the other hand, we have the crisis of tribalism, which is very similar in a way, and, and, and that's about the objectification of other people. And if you don't see them as thinking, feeling subjects with souls, you can abuse them, you can detest them, you can keep them out of your country, you can, uh, you know, discriminate against them. So here are these two giant problems that the psychedelic experience casts in a new light. Because one of the feelings people reliably report is a deepened connection with other people strong feelings of love come up over and over and over again and love for the most unexpected people in your life or not in your life. And then this new connection to nature, 
um, which becomes really powerful and, and nature becomes much more alive for you than it ever was before. And, and I think in both cases, this involves lowering our ego defenses, shrinking our ego and, and recognizing that we're part of something larger, a social collectivity and, and, and nature. Um, this is exactly what the doctor ordered for, the, for this particular civilization. But the challenge is, if you can do that on an individual basis, and God knows we have the reports of a great many individuals who feel this way after their trip or during their trip, how do you convey those benefits that Rx to the whole civilization? You know, do you put LSD in the drinking water? I, I don't think so. We don't really have a model for treating a whole civilization. You know, the closest thing we have is putting fluoride in the water. And I don't know if, that's a, if that is a, um, a good parallel or not. But the fact is that these drugs appear to have the potential to help us address what ails us. And that is this egocentric consciousness that objectifies everything but the self and perhaps a few loved ones. Um, so that's, you know, that's very exciting, but it's also perplexing in that what do we do with that insight? And frankly, I'm just not sure. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. To learn more about Michael Pollan's new work, go to vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.